0: Hey everyone, my online course on the rehabilitation of the fitness athlete with Dan Pope is on sale this week. If you want to work with higher level fitness athletes and help people get back into the gym after an injury, this is the course for you. Head to com slash athlete to learn more and sign up this week. On this episode of the Ask Mike Reynolds Show, I am joined by my good friend, Russ Payne from Houston, Texas. We're going to talk about biofeedback and restoring volitional muscle contraction. The Ask Mike Reinold Show. Helping people feel better, move better, and perform better. Before we get to the podcast, I wanted to make sure you knew about my free online course on the Introduction to Performance Therapy and Training. If you want to learn how to get started optimizing and enhancing performance, this is the course for you. Head to MikeReynold.com slash performance to sign up today. Welcome back, everybody, to the latest episode of the Ask Mike Reynolds Show. I am here today. We're going to flip the script again, and we've been doing this uh, a bunch lately with Obviously, the COVID pandemic going on and us staying at home, instead of us all being a champion answering your questions with my team there, what I've actually gotten to do is to team up with some of my friends and colleagues around the nation and, and ask them some questions. So instead of you guys listening to my garbage all the time and all my stupid answers, it's time for me to ask some questions to some of the smart people that I know too. So Today, we have a very special guest, my good friend, Russ Payne from uh, Houston, Texas. Uh, Russ is the director of sports medicine at UT Physicians Sports Medicine Group. I don't know if I said that well, but um, I mean, you guys probably heard me talk about Russ in, in a lot of my presentations because a lot of the things that I've learned and I've done on the scapula and and, heck, lots of things on the knee and uh neuromuscular control rehabilitation all these things i've learned from from russ and and people all the time but russ to to me is one of those groups of like godfathers of sports like physical therapy that that have been very influential to me so uh, if it wasn't for the pandemic i feel like we wouldn't be doing these things right russ but it's great to to have you on the show so welcome
1: thanks mike happy to be here
0: yeah it was awesome so uh, so a few years ago now it's been what how many years since the m trigger came out
1: Um, you know, I think we hit the market like two years ago, uh, we've been developing it, developing it for five years. So it's been on the market for a year and a half, two years. Yeah. Nice. So, so Russ
0: has teamed up with another friend of ours, Brian Pryor that, um, you know, Uh, has done some good work with the light care laser and stuff like that, but they've teamed up together to come up with a new biofeedback unit called the M trigger. And if you've followed me for some time, I've been talking about this now for years with Russ and been kind of trying to help get the word out because what a lot of people don't know is that people like Russ and I, and a lot of our friends, we use biofeedback a ton even though it's not readily available on the market, but we love biofeedback for post-op patients, even some of our injured people that didn't have surgery. But Russ, why, why don't we why don't we start with that? Tell us a little bit about biofeedback. Like what happened to biofeedback and why is the why did this kind of fade away? Why why is biofeedback not as common
1: as it used to be? Well it's that's I, I'd kind of disagree with you a little bit that it never was a big <laughs> It never was a big thing, you know? Right. It was That's overshadowed by muscle stem, so it didn't, like, come and fade away. It's just been gradually building over a period of time, and I was one of the few people that used it. Um, I used a little handheld uh, biofeedback because I just didn't feel like I was getting results with muscle stem, and I've had, like, 13 knee surgeries, so I've tried all the stuff <laughs> to get your quad back, and, when oh, I put muscle stem on. I said, oh, it looks good, but I can't make my own muscle, you know? Right. so. I uh, started using biofeedback, and I realized that my patients were getting better so much faster. And, uh, you know, I've seen all pro athletes, and I see, you know, athletes that have had an ACL reconstruction in the NFL, and they're a year and a half post-op, and they come to me, and they can't do it. They've got an extensor lag. You know, they really. can't even do a straight leg raise. And my patients don't have that problem because we address that in the beginning. Uh, part of the reason is the the devices were expensive too. I mean, they right. were two or three thousand dollars for a device, and it's, it really wasn't that very user friendly. And the muscle stem market was so big. The reason the muscle right. stem market was so big is because it was a rental, reimbursable product that made millions and probably billions of dollars. So right. tons of money was was issued to help support that as a rental product for research. There's only a few articles on biofeedback because biofeedback got cut loose as a code. You, the actual code is still there. But most people, insurance companies don't reimburse because the psychology and psychiatric group abused that code uh, for relaxation and that type of thing. So insurance companies said, we're not paying for that. That's so crazy. now we use the, the neuromuscular uh, code when we use biofeedback. So instead, we do therapeutic exercise, manual therapy, and then neuromuscular code is what we use for biofeedback. Right. So that makes sense. So this, there's really not a code for biofeedback that really works, even though there is a code. Most people don't reimburse for it. But I think this is a kind of a, a since I've learned more about it, it's a new wave concept that's kind of spreading through to understand the science behind why biofeedback works, maybe even better than muscle stim. Right. So when right. you have my device, which is very sophisticated, user friendly, people can come in and download the app on their phone and get to work with it. They see the results. And people that are really in tune with their patients love this device. And it's up to your right. creativity what you can do with it. So right. it's all about starting and, you know, to diminish the atrophy and inhibition that occurs day two post-op. Uh, right. I'll use the biofeedback for day two post-op up to three months post-op. Every time they come in, they get 10 minutes of quad setting. And our goal is to recruit more motor units. Right. And that's why my patients all do well. That's one right. reason. Right. And, and it's, we all know that people,
0: especially the, more, the, the complicated procedures, the, you know, the big pain and the swell, you know, swelling in the knees and other joints, we all know that they have a terrible time with volitional control right so it's 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 funny you you hear other people struggling or you know they say like hey contract that quad you're like yeah no i i know i'm supposed to contract part i can't i haven't been trained to do that well so you know we've been big fans of biofeedback um just along the way because i think it's great that it works for volitional control but a device like yours like the m trigger it gives you feedback immediately of how much muscle contraction you're performing right that's bio feedback that's the whole point of it it's not just let's turn on a neuromuscular stim and crank it up as high as we can but let's see how much you can press and and you can contract and we know through all the the research that effort goes up when you have an immediate feedback and you see that and you you know the outcomes comes back so it's great for volitional control um for me i think a lot of the new grads and students in physical therapy just haven't been exposed to it a little bit so you know Um, we know there's neuromuscular stim why why don't you tell people that maybe haven't worked with biofeedback much what's the difference on the on the inside between biofeedback and neuromuscular electrical stim that nmes like what's
1: happening to the body
0: differently on these two
1: well another point to make just to finish with what your point was that patients like to grade themselves too, right? <laughs> that's true. <laughs> they come in and they're like, oh my God, I can't even make this light go up hardly at all. I'm only at 300 micro votes. And then they come in the next week, they're at 1200 microvolts. So that's right. another uh, motivational thing. So yeah. the difference I think between the two devices is, Uh, It's kind of a scientific thing, and we've done a a little, I did a little lecture that Michael share with you that goes into detail on this, but it's all about volitional contraction versus electrical muscle stem distally contracting. So when you have a, a volitional contraction, you use your brain, and we now know that there's a decrease in cortical input in an ACL injured patient or anybody that has a swollen knee. So when you start with the cortex and go through the cortical pathways down to the femoral nerve, you're involving the entire system. So that's one thing that's different. When you put electrodes on your muscle, it's a distal brain, right? It's on your quad. So that's why you can't put muscle stem on or wake up with a big muscle or big abs or whatever. And so the other thing it does is when you put electrical muscle stem on, it simulates the largest diameter axons. Okay. So, Mike, what is got the largest diameter axon? The fast twitch or the slow twitch? It's, it's, muscle it's, fiber. it's type two, right? Right. Right. yes. Type two That's muscle good. fiber. I just, good job. That was pretty good. I was like, so, you know, got me nervous there,
0: but type twos do.
1: <laughs> type two. Okay. So, what is the most inhibited muscle fiber type? Is type one the slow twitch muscle fiber types are the ones that are inhibited the most. And that's been proven several times. So if you just stimulate the fast twitch and don't get to the slow twitch, you never really start with this volitional order of recruitment. And when you make a volitional contraction, the first muscle fiber type that fires is the slow twitch. So an isometric contraction starts with slow twitch and if you're bench pressing, you know, or, or doing a big squat, you bring in the fast twitch. But you get, you know, and that's a good thing to do because it develops muscle fiber size. But if you don't start with the proper order of recruitment between slow twitch to medium fast twitch to high end fast twitch, then you never establish that hierarchy and you never really reverse the uh, inhibition. So right. over a period of time, patients start to get a volitional contraction. But have you ever tried to have a volitional contraction with the muscle stem? It's hard. Right. It's hard to do. And that's what we tell our people to do. I want you to work with the muscle stem. But they're like, well, I think I'm doing it, but I'm not really sure. But when you use biofeedback, you get immediate feedback and you start this order of recruitment to go from slow twitch, building up, really strong contraction, eventually to fast twitch. So that's the science behind it.
0: Now, what do In you do nose. with what do you do with somebody that is super acute? So they're just days within surgery, and they have zero volitional contraction. Do you ever right. you ever use some NMES for a little bit to help them get over that hump, or do you you still go right into biofeedback?
1: I'm, I, you know, it's not because I'm so It's just because it works. <laughs> okay? so, um, I haven't put a muscle stem on a patient in probably, I don't know, maybe five years. So That's what awesome. I will do in that case is, you know, we're having them with their knee in full extension, the quadriceps in a shortened position, and they can't make a muscle. That's, it's hard to do, right? If you've right. got a swollen, painful knee. Maybe they can do a leg raise. When you do a leg raise, the EMG goes way up. So I'll right. sit them over the edge of the table because they typically don't have any range of motion restrictions. In the video, you'll see in my presentation, we set a two-day post-op patient that couldn't do a leg raise, couldn't do a quad set, over the edge of the table, and we had one of the top Texans quarterbacks that you know of that was having difficulty uh after his ACL. And I said, "Dr. Lewis, man, we're having difficulty Well, who this. Sit him over the edge and have him do an active knee extension." So that's what I do. Yeah, I sit him over the edge, and if yeah. they can bend to you know seventy degrees or so. The peak EMG activity of your quad during an active knee extension is, you know, between ninety and thirty degrees. On an active knee extension, it's out near full extension, but it's at 30 degrees. So right. we do 90 to 40. And they can fire their muscle in that position. That makes another sense. Another trick you can another trick you can do is have them in the gravity eliminated position. So just bring their knee up in full extension to a ninety degree position, just like we do with a rotator cuff repair you know, have them in gravity, eliminate them, try them try to hold their limb in that position and have them try to pick their heel up off your hand. that's, so that's another tool. But the easiest thing to do is sit them over the edge of the table. You're not going to blow the graft out. No, no, okay. they, can, they can't even not control with, the quad with No resistance, you know, <laughs> right. and you're not even getting their full extension. Now, if you had them do, you know, a 50 pound knee extension machine, maybe, maybe, but yeah. with this, That's why people don't do it because you got so ingrained to orthopedic surgeons brain that knee extensions are bad for ACLs, but it's not a problem in the acute stage.
0: Right. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. So obvious implications for the knee, right? Like especially ACL, like we, we we're having patients that have quad strength deficits for months down the road. You know, who knows if we had just layered this on earlier to get volitional control earlier, would strength and conditioning the, at the two, three, four, five month mark been much more effective, right? It's mind blowing to think what what we may have
1: missed, right? It's a variable that we have not looked at right. in the past. Now, you there are e, the EMG devices that were you know five to eight thousand dollars where you could do a true EMG test, but there's never been anything that you, that's quick and dirty that you can look at the neuromuscular deficit, right. and that's what we're doing right now. And our goal is to compare our strength deficits that we see when we test them at six months post-op in our our follow-up program and compare those strength deficits to the EMG deficits. Right. In my patient population, typically around two to three months, we've gotten rid of the neuromuscular deficit. But That's as i right. said before, you know, people jump the gun, and they don't restore strength, and they jump into functional movements and functional exercise, and these swells, they have no eccentric right. control, they can't decelerate, and I'm putting them on the biofeedback, and they're freaking 50% deficit in their neuromuscular control. Right. It's a variable that I think, you know, I think it's a wave, this is a wave of sort of a mentality that I think people will adopt once they see it, and once we publish things, that this is one uh, variable that we need to take off the shelf. Right, and, you know, and it makes sense too because we,
0: you know, if you look at how a quad functions, if you can barely do a quad set and a straight leg raise, and then you immediately jump into the gym and start doing some exercise just because it's week X, then you've 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 missed the boat. But. That's the really neat thing about biofeedback in general, though, is it's not just an exercise tool, but you can quantify. You can quantify the contraction. You can compare side to side. You can look for a neuromuscular deficit. So this isn't just a tool to to rehab with. This is a tool to almost use as part of your evaluation process, too, right?
1: Right. And we spent a little extra money to put in that neuromuscular deficit test because I thought it was important and <laughs> to do did, did it to do a two channel biofeedback instead of one channel so we could right. do that comparison. So it, the other thing we're doing in the next year is we're partnering with a company called Blue Jay and they do home networking with patients that's HIPAA compliant. So eventually the patient will be able to download the app on their phone and they'll have a folder of their EMG data that we can share and we can pull it up and look at it together the physician can see that. And this is one thing that if, if you guys have an M trigger out there that are listening to this, I use I put these numbers down in my notes objectively. Right. So sure. instead of saying, you know, I oh, quads a little bit better, better muscle tone, I'll put they started at seven hundred you know, microvolts, now they're at twelve hundred microvolts EMG. So this is a objective criteria that allows us to document a patient's progress. And the patients love it. I mean, they like to see the numbers you know, right. that they're getting yeah. better.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's really neat. And we've talked a lot about like using it on a muscle group to get a muscle groups of volitional control back and, and to get it stronger down the road. Another neat thing that I do with biofeedback, I wanted to throw at you and then see if you have any other creative things, but the fact that it's two channel, I like to do certain exercises with two different muscle groups on, on two different channels. So I, making it up off the top of my head, but maybe say like, you know, like a hip extension and we have some of the pads on the low back and some on the glute. And I say like, look, I want you to do this bird dog for a hip extension. I want to see glutes and less back. I want to, I want to make sure that we're doing it right or the right core is firing or heck even upper trap, the lower trap ratios. Um, what, what other neat ways do you use it? Because I'm sure you're even more creative than I am.
1: Well, that's for sure. Um, no, <laughs> good answer. No. That was good. No, you're you're Mr. Creativity, so I I learn a lot from you. Um, one thing that's really uh, helpful is to use it with uh, prone planks for uh, teaching people to do a lumbar stabilization program. So you want to fire your abdominals and your erector spinae together to brace, right? With right. Uh, with that, and so you're you know you teach people neutral spine positioning. You teach them to brace. But they don't really know whether they're firing or not but with the m trigger you use two channels you can see exactly what's going on and you say well you're not really firing your abs well i think i am but i said you need to get that oh your erector spine is going down so you can use it for that that's a really good i don't see that many spine patients i see a few uh but the spine therapists are crazy with it now strength and conditioning is a whole nother ball game and it's a really good tool for performance individuals that are you know, strength coaches and also personal trainers, it's a great tool for them. With regard to the shoulder, posterior cuff and lower trap are two great uh, kind of sister muscles that work together with different activities. I've got a bunch of videos that I think you've seen so that we can fire the posterior cuff and at the same time try to get uh, posterior tilting of the scapula. Now Phil Page has used it for uh, limiting upper trap activity along with lower traps. So some people believe that the upper trap may be kind of like an antagonist to what you're trying to achieve. So you can use one channel for inhibition, the other channel for contraction. Now, another thing we've been doing recently, well, if you have a bilateral knee patient, you can use two channels, and you know the patient can do both of those knees simultaneously. During the rest period, of one do the the other one. You know me, I'm brutal. So (laughs) the other thing you can do is you can do quadriceps and hamstring contractions. But I don't do a co-contraction. I do you know uh, fifteen or ten seconds of quad, and when the quad relaxes, do a hamstring isometric. We never do hamstring isometrics, but hamstrings are a really important muscle group. We kind of forget about that. But it's really up to your creativity. That's the beauty of this device: is you can you know, think of things to do, and the other fun thing to do is, like, put it on the serratus anterior, and and try to prove some of these research articles that you've seen, that, oh, this, does the, you know, the climbing of the wall with your elbows against the wall, what do you call that? I can't remember you. uh, Does that (laughs) increase your serratus activity? And sure enough, it does. Right. What about the dynamic hug? Which one's a better exercise? What about rowing, or what about, you know, manual resisted external rotation so you can prove it to yourself so it's a fun tool right and the and everybody's different right when we
0: look at those studies we look at like a mean of a group of subjects right you may find that one exercise is better than another for a certain person right so you know the more individualized the better so um awesome so that like that this is my favorite kind of episode right here because one, I don't have to talk the whole time. It's fantastic to actually ask (laughs) smarter people questions, but Russ is the man on biofeedback and this M trigger device is really amazing and ridiculously affordable. There's no reason why everybody shouldn't be using this. I just, I just think, People don't know about it. So uh, hopefully we can get some awareness to this because it's something that some of the best sport physical therapists I know are using. So the, you know, the, the best are using it. And I think it's something everybody should use it. So, you know, we learned, we learned about the science behind it. We learned about why it's better than neuromuscular stim and some creative ways to use it for, for a bunch of different things. Uh, thank you, Russ. I appreciate you taking, you know, the time out of your schedule and the freaking pandemic that we're having to, to do this. So thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Yeah. And if you have any more questions like this, even though I asked all the questions, but if you have questions too, you know what to do. Go to MikeReynolds.com, click on that podcast link, and you can fill out the form to ask us questions. Be sure to rate and review this on iTunes and Spotify, and we will see you on the next episode. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, head to MikeReynolds.com slash podcast and fill out the form to submit your question.